0: The following discussions are a further look into Director Thomas W. Arlington and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the Wind Door as a side detail something i remember alex talking about in one place or another was way back in the day back when a lot of these stories were going to be all part of one big sprawling epic that ended up being a lot of the individual stories of phase 1 plus steamheart he had the idea that the first line would be I forget the exact wording of it, but something along the lines of, it is 1873 or something like that, and Rutherford B. Hayes has been eaten by a manticore. Just been, (laughs) yeah. Like, just this opening thing where there were certain little details in it, like the year and the position that Hayes had at the time, which would signify to people who knew their history wait, that doesn't sound right. A, he shouldn't be here at this point, or B, he shouldn't have this position because he should be this. (laughs) And then also Manticore. Pretty sure that's different. And so this moment is definitely something that I think Alex had been building to for a while, just emblematic of what new century, the new directions it's heading into. It feels like if we've been teasing the idea of these overlaps into the other worlds which of course the wendigo is very much a result of that and we've been seeing an adventure take place in a world like rama with miguel here it's like okay all this other world shit it's come crashing on your doorstep and we're gonna see some weird shit going Mm -hmm. hit forward so yeah, it's a it's a really strong start to it, and I think it's why I really enjoy the book cover. I'm I said mm-hmm. in the previous show, if this was a visual format, then you would see me pointing to it. This is uh, Greg can now actually see me pointing to it. It's over there, a canvas of the cover because you see these two figures who look impressive, and there's a feeling of they are standing tall and want to enact change, and there's the sh- looming shadow of a mythical beast, and you're just like, what is that doing there?
1: In case it wasn't made clear from an earlier side comment, when we recorded this Skype session, I decided to experiment with us doing it with video instead of audio. I wanted to see if us being able to see each other would add layers to our conversation, even if no one else could see us. And I think it did, though some of those layers may be subtle and more in how we responded to each other overall by being able to see faces and gestures, as well as being able to see when we had trailed off in thought.
0: It's a strong start, and... C- can you tell me where
1: that came from? Did you just had, Did you just... Did Alex just give you the image and you had it professionally printed or something?
0: So, um... Okay, so... Backstory time.
1: Long ago, the four nations lived together in
2: harmony then everything changed when the fire nation attacked
0: many many years ago back when before through the Wind or before any of this back when i my major creative output was on my blog the inquisitive j before i was doing like episode breakdowns of like let them go when that was first coming out or steam heart or just talking about that when I was doing reviews of each of the books, I did a sort of series where I and I sort of approached Axis and said, hey, I'm thinking of before Steamheart comes out doing like reviews of each book. uh, Would that be cool? And he said, absolutely, because of course he did. I sent him the links to each of them. And when I had finished the final one, which was at the time, there were only five uh, New Century books out, how the times have changed Mm. um he asked for my address and then lo and behold i had arlington on the wall because i had mentioned at the time that arlington was my favorite because alex is far (laughs) too kind a man and he should stop he's lovely yeah
1: that that um that sounds like a very alex thing to do then um yes and the only re- The only reason I bring it up is because I used to work in a full on print shop mm-hmm. and would have had access to a large format printer that could have rendered one of these designs on matte paper or glossy paper or canvas like you said, and could have just like used some resources and hung it up on my wall back in the day. I mm-hmm. have not had access to that level of technology or printing croissants in a very long time mm. and i'm not as sure if i'd be able to get away with it anyway because the place that i work for didn't really keep track of waste all that much oh, yeah. um and another place might uh, be like okay so we used a bunch of paper here can you account for that and everything <laughs> like that but yeah so mm, that's <laughs> a nice decoration to have uh it's... appreciate that
0: Yeah, it's uh, been a regular fixture of my home in, the, I think, several flats that I've been living in since then. But anyway, back to Arlington, the story, and not Arlington, the kick-ass canvas decoration. (laughs) Um, So this section with the manticore, Annie's narration in this section evokes readiness, as we discussed before. She's in her element. She... Mm -hmm has been assessing everything but the manticore is something that neither the characters within the story or the reader could ever be ready for we all have a workable understanding at this point of how a wendigo will act it's not definitive but it is workable Mm -hmm. Uh, you know we know how it can be contained and should they suddenly come into this situation but they're also reading themselves for human threats who could mm-hmm. specifically target Hayes. You know, we see Annie potentially successfully defuse one of those. So you get this feeling that of all the threats that you could know about, you know, we're covered. But an unknown monster, which is unlike the Wendigo, who had specific goals like a human assassin might, that's a recipe we didn't know was on the menu
1: and it sets off a specific tone for the rest of the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Go,
1: going back to your earlier comment of what was originally going to be the first line for this book, or alternately the first line for the section of whatever new century was going to be. The first line of a book is often the most important because mm-hmm. that's the first hook. As my father might say, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And so the mm-hmm. first line of the book is the very first opportunity to make a first impression to hook the reader in. Uh, And there are some books that do this very well. Um, Mm. One of my favorites, I have different opinions on the author now as opposed to back when I was a huge fan of his, but I will never forget a specific opening line from one of Jim Butcher's uh, Dresden Files books that is emblematic of one of those lines that just immediately draws you in which is the building was on fire and it wasn't my fault (laughs) that's good that's very good so the feeling of it's 1883 and vice president rutherford b hayes has just been eaten by a manticore is one of those lines that would have worked really well if that was in fact the first line of the book i'll I'll go ahead and admit that right now um as it turns out a version of that line ends up at the end of this of this first chapter yes but then is followed up with the further wham line of hey you know the uh The main, the 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 driving force behind the RSA, the guy who wrote the Cartographer's Handbook, the guy whose leadership we all follow, the guy whose this book is named after. Yeah, Yeah, by the end of this book, he' gonna be fucking dead. What? You can't do that. Yeah,
3: like
0: it's. I mean, because it's disarming. Because after we already felt destabilized by the account of. Hayes's assassination like this is like oh man how could this possibly get worse and then it's like <laughs> oh that's not good like oh you sweet summer child yeah like we were told that Hayes's death must not happen and then it does if Hayes a man who was seemingly necessary despite not being the most inspiring of men was someone we apparently couldn't afford to lose what about Arlington mm. By reputation, we can see how important he is to this new government. But as readers, Arlington might just be the first voice we've heard in New Century. Like, if we started with Cartographer's Handbook, Mm. which those listening at the time would have, you know, more than that, as the editor and guiding voice of Cartographer's, a proclamation of what New Century aspires to be, the idea of losing Thomas so soon in the story of New Century makes us. Deeply uncertain, mm, we were mm, already mm. put in the headspace of a nation of people mourning the lives that they thought they would have lived. Are we now going to have to reevaluate what the trajectory of new century will be?
1: <sighs> yeah, so <sighs> that's our starting point.
0: That's the starting which,
1: point which is why the stuff that comes next, I think is very important. As you as you mention in your response to my notes, chapter two immediately takes us back in time. Back in time. Different back in time to Different the back, back in time, in time that uh, <laughs> is forthcoming, but or was
0: forthcoming. Yeah, exactly. It's now past appropriately.
1: Whoa, this is heavy. We get to have. Some time with an equally affable and fun character that is making his way into what seems like a mostly hopeful situation, you know, where Mm -hmm. he is coming to his new position and getting to see things that he has never seen before. It's a place that seems to be stable but is now, because of getting to uh, check out the uh, the workshops, getting to see the wonder that comes about when great minds are allowed to create. Mm-hmm. And moreover, due to the byplay between Edison and Tesla in this chapter, there's some incredibly great humor added to the proceedings.
0: Mm, it's it's very canny having Edison and Tesla there because they're like the perfect sort of figures that you hear and you go, I know what sort of technology that to expect, but it's also because of just the reputation that these two have developed mm-hmm. over the years, it sort of immediately establishes, even though we haven't met them at this point in the story, a familiarity of, okay, what are these two characters like? So it sets you off for as much as they are like serious historical figures, there's, for whatever reason, this cultural thing of, uh I, I'm expecting comedic antics of these two sharing a space <laughs> together.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't actually even know how much the two of them interacted as people. We mm. mostly know them through their reputations as being rivals in the field of technology and electricity specifically i have no idea how much conversation the two of them had in history mm. but due to the circumstances of this world they are required to work together and share information as is a part of the uh conversation that frank intrudes on and everything like that and so therefore we see the comedy antics of two personalities clashing in mm. the workspace in ways that are very intrinsic to who they are as people. It's not simply that their personalities clash. It's that we see the consummate capitalist in Edison and the, the serious, no-nonsense manner and upbringing That we would expect from nikola tesla from perhaps other sources like say the prestige or Mm. other depictions of nikolai tesla in other pieces of media
0: Mm. and it's wonderful and seeing these two in the same space sparks literally fly Mm
1: -hmm. um yeah exactly perfect metaphor to use for the situation
0: yeah like you uh, mentioned earlier, this is very necessary and appreciated, not only because we need a bit of peace after like the explosive opening prologue, but because we haven't actually had a chance to see what an established city in this world looks like. Mm-hmm. How have the people and their day-to-day tools developed? The dynamic between Edison and Tesla is a chance to show that the technological developments of this setting aren't just a straight line. Everywhere in Washington, there is a discourse and a disagreement over what is the best route forward, including Mm. technology. And uh, heck, they're even arguing about different types of transportation. They are literally arguing over the best route forward.
1: (laughs) Oh, very well played, sir. I like that. That's great. Oh, thank Um, you. (laughs) I do eventually want to talk a little bit more about uh, what you just mentioned in terms of the setting of the city of the District of Columbia in a second, because there's there's elements that we breezed very quickly past Mm -hmm. on our way to the most fun part of this chapter. Oh, yes. But returning to specifically the scene in the workshop, I think it's less emblematic of a city in the world of New Century specifically, because this is also the ideal. This is the potential Mm. for what happens when people have the right resources and can create things that didn't even exist in our reality Mm. in order to basically... Necessity is the mother of invention, as the old adage goes, and the RSA has a great necessity for tools that will help them rebuild at this point. That's what this workshop is all about from a thematic perspective, but from a comedic slash dramatic side of things, the scene in the workshop is, is really powerful, especially as Harry comes into focus and there's a reason why a good portion of this chapter was one of the things that alex chose to share with people back in the day when he was promoting arlington at at the end of school of movies episodes and such like it is the first taste of new century that i got that made me Particularly intrigued about New Century. Like, I wanted to know what was going to happen next. It still took a few months before I finally mentioned in conversation with Alex, I really need to start looking at New Century. And he threw a Bandcamp code at me for Let Them Go, which began my journey back in 2019. Technically, my first experience with a scene from new century should actually have come a lot earlier. And I don't know why I forgot this because it was very specifically from tiger's eye in the Congo episode, (laughs) which has now been established as being not the first time I noticed school of movies, but the first episode that got me seriously hooked on the show, likely due to some combination of vague 90s nostalgia, along with the hilarious comedic parts of the episode, and references to James Stephanie's Sterling bits that I would have been well acquainted with. Mm-hmm. Has nothing to do with Maureen's voice, no. Um nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh... So I'm just going to say that maybe I didn't listen to the Congo episode all the way through, uh, that something else distracted me or something like that. But... It was
0: sesame cake.
1: <laughs> Stop eating my sesame cake! Uh, okay, sorry. Um, back on track, back on track. But yes, this interaction stuck with me, uh, and that speaks to the power of the scene, the humor and the intensity and very specifically in the interest that Harry sparks in the audience above Mm. the bumbling conflict between Edison and Tesla. Like that, Mm. that, that whole thing is fun and intriguing, but it's Harry and Frank interacting. That is The most compelling part of this chapter.
0: This cuts the bullshit and gets to the heart.
1: Yes, exactly. Tesla and Edison are actual historical characters, and this young black woman is smarter than both of them. Mm -hmm. Like, and this was written before Black Panther, Mm -hmm. which did something similar in its eventual characterization down the line. In the MCU, the two smartest people, as far as science and technology are concerned, are Tony Stark and Bruce Banner. And one of the things that, not Black Panther, but specifically Infinity War establishes, is that fucking Shuri is smarter than both of them.
0: It's a very (laughs) great moment of just you dumbasses, why didn't you just do this? And they don't have an answer. The answer is we didn't think of it, <laughs> but something that like a lot of people forget is that it's not just them. It's also like you see Vision on like the table, and he just sort of looks and he's like, hmm. like like he didn't think of it either, <laughs> and like he's Vision. He's a supercomputer. <laughs> he was literally created
1: by the Mindstone, one of the founding artifacts of the MCU. Why the hell didn't he think of that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: no. It's just a. Well, why did you do this?
1: <laughs> also, I, I mean, it, it's it's interesting that you that you had that interpretation of it because, I, and I do think it's valid to a degree, but I also think part of that look was just sort of glancing over at Bruce and going, "Yeah, why didn't you think of that?" <laughs> like putting the accusation on him rather than admitting, "Oh, I didn't think of it either." Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, So, Uh. I mean, it's not like he would have been in a position to consult on his own creation either. So, you know, Mm. what can you do? But to bring us back to Harry, to bring us back to Harry, that scene is already great, especially if you listen to the audio drama and you hear some of the um, diegetic sounds that Alex decides to incorporate, particularly the sound that steamheart makes on starting up which has been established now I confirm this uh, it's a mix of sounds but one of the key elements is a sound that was lifted directly from Ghostbusters in terms of like the proton pack turning on mm-hmm. that's a sound that's very recognizable to the right kind of people and so therefore it, it kind of like makes our 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 nerd senses just sort of tingle and glee
0: to yeah. hear something like that. And because that's... it simultaneously evokes both like new experimental technology brimming mm-hmm. with power, but also a comforting nostalgic dose of cinematic fun and adventure to those who recognize it. Mm-hmm.
1: And the sound the sounds involved are also storytelling elements in their own right. Steelborn sounds powerful and mm. spearhead sounds speedy, but also kind of a little bit dangerous, which is sort of ties in a bit to where Edison actually shocks himself. It does that just through different cadences of electrical type sound effects. Mm-hmm. Steamheart sounds different on top of that. Yeah. It sounds like something that the others do not mm. control has all of the power of the others but focused
0: yeah it feels practical in the sense that while you know tesla's is positioned as the one that's practical over edison's which is just pure form mm-hmm. uh it nevertheless has issues that mean that like you are actually like okay this works but it's not really you know something that's going to help right now
1: I mean, your mileage may vary on whether it's going to be helpful or not. I don't want to spoil, after all. Both of the other craft are more limited in various ways. But at least Teslas is more self-sufficient than Edison's, which requires an entire infrastructure to make practical.
0: I think that Harry's is something that is like, no, this like, actually works for what we need it to and can go. It's the difference between something that is like good conceptually and something that is there and fully formed.
1: Mm, mm, mm. And here is where I actually go down to your notes and realize that you had that same information, um, that, uh, that, (laughs) that Steve Hart was based around the Ghostbusters proton pack sound. Uh, and I like your, your, your ending conclusion here. It's an empowering sound.
0: That's it.
1: Highly agreed. Yes. Mm hmm. So we've got all of that. We've got the humor of Edison and Tesla bickering. We've got the compelling nature of Harry's persona and mind and interaction with Frank, which we really, really like. I I believe you've mentioned, I believe that we've mentioned earlier at this point, that the conversation between Frank and Harry in... Arlington, it came up in Nightfall, as I recall. Yes, is is very emblematic of why we like Frank as a character, and so therefore, it's difficult when things change down the line. uh, And I can't get into those changes because Nightfall was Nightfall, and that's the future. This is where we're focusing on the retrospect.
0: But the future was in the past. We're talking about the present, which is also the past.
1: yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So you've got all of these wonderful elements now here in chapter two to take the edge off the difficult dramatic opening of chapter one. Mm. And then the chapter ends with the entry of the director himself. And this part was not in the piece that was put in the School of Movies episode that I listened to. It mm. is the revelation that this bright, fascinating creative young woman is in fact the daughter of Thomas Arlington, which puts an entire new thing right on top of that. It does it it, with one fucking line. does it with
0: one fucking line. Hi, Mm. daddy. Yeah, and it's like, (laughs) oh, and it's like, it's surprising and it's delightful Mm -hmm. and sidebar. As time goes on, I'm noticing that Alex is doing this more and more. You know, the bit in Panther Soul I'm talking about, and just from the first chapter of Back in Time, that was also just like, wait, what? (laughs) 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 So, not going in the final cut. I know it's not even going in the outtakes, but I just had, like, this was something I realized and had to share. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I mean,. Good reveals are good reveals. Yeah, they are. I did think about taking this out, but Toby was excitedly vague enough that I left it in, and you kind of not only have to have read the books to understand, but you also need to have followed our minds as Toby abruptly jumped mental tracks. As always, context is key. So, that's the bulk of Chapter Mm 2. Here I want to rewind it slightly and talk about some of those early descriptive moments of dc and we are going to see obviously more of this as the book continues to play out is that dc may feel like a very hopeful place and is emblemized specifically by the cartographer's workshop or the I forget what the actual term for it is now, and I'll have to edit this in. As it turns out, the complex doesn't actually have a name, other than being the military R&D part of Langley, where the NIA resides. But I guess I was referring to a specific part of Lab B, which Corporal Higgins clearly refers to as the playpen. Even as Frank is beginning his day and moving to have his appointment with Director Arlington, he is seeing some of the same things that were introduced in the outlying reclaimed areas of the RSA, which is that there there is something rotten in the state of Denmark. There are things Mm. that are simmering below the surface. Secret rooms presented the idea that the unreclaimed parts of America have hostility that they may have to deal with. Mm. But between the boy that Annie stares down in the first chapter and the hostile glances that Frank tries not to respond to, we get more of a picture of what Annie was talking about when she was saying that things are bad. There is a Mm. seam of pain and anger present even here in ostensibly one of the safest parts of the RSA
0: yes it's as if we've been seeing the efforts for people to come together up to this point in new century but now arlington is the story that emerges once those people are brought together or the dust has settled after disaster and the question now becomes how we do or don't work together how we treat one another all of that comes into being this is the turning point Do we unify, or is there too much disunity for that?
1: Yeah. That sound there was basically me hitting the table as Toby's words struck a chord in my head. I don't want to get off on a rant, as that doesn't feel like particularly helpful. But as we will go on to talk about, this book was written after the Ferguson assaults of 2015 during the growing turmoil of 2016, and was already conceived with a lot of 20th century racial history in mind, it hurts how relevant these things still are, and how it feels like as much progress as we have made, sometimes there seems like there's no progress at all. I used the quote from Jean-Baptiste Alphonse Carl, The Bloody Time, after reading it in the pages of X-Men 200. But here instead, I'll refer to a different quote that I learned thanks to the West Wing.
2: But it was your own great Irish master, Eugene O'Neill, who said there is no present or future, only the past, happening over and over again now.
1: That's where that question begins, mm-hmm. and will continue to resonate throughout much of this book and beyond from there. But as mentioned, this is only the beginning. So let's move on to chapter three.
0: Let's let's put a pin in that. I'm sure it won't take too much time to resolve. (sighs) Yeah. It's too Uh, real.
1: (laughs) Too real.
0: Um, We mentioned that we were uh, anxious about starting this one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Too real in terms of this book and uh, too real in terms of reality. Moving on, moving on. <laughs> Toby tugging his collar here. Yeah. Uh,
0: so see, uh, see in this format, I get to do a lot more of my visual gags.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. So that's part of the reason why uh, I thought that us
0: having visual at least would work very
1: well for this new phase quote unquote Mm. phase this new phase of through the window not the new phase of new century because that that, that's a completely different kind of phase yeah
0: as you do we start this new phase halfway through an ongoing season yeah because we're good at planning like that (laughs)
1: look you know we're we're over a year into it at this point there have been a number of changes in terms of length of episodes in terms of what i include in the show notes the layout of all of that I have even completely gone through now and put tags for each of the episodes of through the Wind so that people can properly look them up and like, okay, if you just want all of the episodes for Tiger's Eye, you can type that in and hear all of those now. If you don't want to have to scroll through and find each individual interview, you can look up White Scarves Team up. And mm. if you just want to hear our thoughts on the new books, that has its own tag now as well, because we've got so many episodes at this point that takes up multiple pages. Let's help our audience find the ones that they're actually interested in.
0: Yeah. And you never know when you might get a link from another sort of source that puts people towards our page. You never know.
1: Yeah, exactly. Our our audience could grow at any time,
0: you know, mm. for yeah. any reason. Yeah. The mind boggles.
1: And once more we're not a visual medium, so just picture Toby sipping his coffee while staring mysteriously at the camera. Yeah, yeah. we're going to leave for that without <laughs> clarifying for now. Let's talk about chapter three. I have complicated feelings about mm. this first scene where Arlington is interacting with the Amish bishop. In general, and I'm going to end up talking a little bit about religion here, and people already know that once I start talking about religion, it starts becoming very complicated and a little bit fraught based on conversations I've had on Discord and every time it's come up in Through the Wind in the past. In general, I laud the origins of the Amish in Anabaptism. Anabaptism is a schism with another Christian schism, and I have learned enough history to know that these people, who were generally good people that just wanted to go about their own lives with their own personal take on Christianity, they were treated horribly by uh, the Calvinist and Lutheran sects, were actually targeted for cleansing, so to speak. So, as far as the Amish themselves are concerned, I view some of their goals as laudable, as the ideas of generally not engaging in violence and living without a desire to acquire wealth. But again, as mentioned previously, there's theory and there's practice. And in practice, not just in terms of the complications it results with regards to the RSA as well as their focus on piety and God above reason, pushing my buttons, just as they push Arlington's buttons. There's something present in the written text that can only be implied in the audio drama in regards to Arlington's thoughts regarding Bishop Miller's intransigence. We have to hear it In Alex's performance of Thomas Arlington in the audio drama, but in the book itself, what is written is this ludicrous defacement of logic was the final straw for me. My temper flared, and I held it back through gritted teeth. I myself have very little patience for people who laud God over logic and science it just happens differently for me in our modern world with very different subsections of christianity subsections that don't actually exist yet in new century
0: Mm. what you're talking about here certainly seems to be a case of the underlying philosophy having some commendable goals and teachings but the idea of placing so much trust in God that it leads to a complacency that some things are just the will of God which mm-hmm. complicates our ability to be patient with this way of thinking and interacting with the wider world the idea that things are actually you know actionable in a way that can help things and if you only had like a broader idea of just you know, what constitutes God's work, then you could very well see that all of these are things that could very well be the will of God. It should not be a case of using that or interpreting that to justify complacency and inaction when action could actually very well bring about positive change. I swear that it's not
1: intentional, but there is an amusing synchronicity behind the fact that while both recording and editing our Arlington conversations, as well as the handbook a little, specific scenes or elements from the West Wing have come to mind again and again. That show was also all about logic and empathy, as well as politics and practicality, but religion does come up a lot in politics, and the president was a Catholic to boot. Any inclusion of men of the cloth in media can set me on edge, especially associating Christianity as an unassailable good, just with some bad apples that use religion to bad ends. But listening to Toby talk, there was one specific scene that came to mind from Season 1 of The West Wing. In the episode I'm cribbing from, the priest is alone with a Catholic priest that he knew from his private life. Talking about a recent decision he made, and feeling frustrated that he didn't receive any guidance from God in making this decision. Over the course of the episode, mind, many people of many different faiths weighed in on this decision to either the president or his advisors. And with that in
2: mind, the priest says this. You remind me of the man that lived by the river. He heard a radio report that the river was going to rush up and flood the town and that all the residents should evacuate their homes. But the man said, I'm religious, I pray, God loves me, God will save me. The waters rose up. A guy in a rowboat came along and he shouted, Hey, hey, you, you in there, the town is flooding. Let me take you to safety. But the man shouted back, I'm religious, I pray, God loves me, God will save me. A helicopter was hovering overhead. And a guy with a megaphone shouted, Hey, you, you down there, the town is flooding. Let me drop this ladder and I'll take you to safety. But the man shouted back that he was religious, that he prayed that God loved him and that God would take him to safety. Well, the man drowned. And standing at the gates of St. Peter, he demanded an audience with God. Lord, he said, I'm a religious man. I pray. I thought you loved me. Why did this happen? God said, I sent you a radio report, a helicopter, and a guy in a rowboat. What the hell are you doing here? He sent you a priest, a rabbi, and a Quaker. Mr. President, not to mention his son, Jesus Christ. What do you want from him?
1: Bearing in mind that The West Wing is definitely not a perfect show, this moment at least highlights that it is possible to believe in God and the tenets of an organized religion, and also believe that God is not in conflict with rationality. Indeed, this same parable was recently in social media as a rebuttal to people not wanting to be vaccinated on religious grounds. In this case, the three methods of help supposedly sent by God were the three vaccines at the time, Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson. So when people use religion as a cudgel to explain things in self-serving ways, it is inordinately frustrating, because it seems clear that it doesn't have to be this way.
0: I have minimal knowledge of the current dispositions of the Amish to wider social and cultural issues or their track record in recent years. So I should try not to make assumptions in place of thoroughly researched conclusions for my own part. As far as the place this demographic has in the story in mm. Arlington, it feels fitting that Thomas is confronted with parts of America that are not violently opposed to him and his plans for America, but they are nevertheless dragging their feet. This is the kind of conflict that requires decisive resolution for Thomas, and it appears to be not only what the rest of the story will deal with, but what Thomas deals with on a daily basis, and it's only going to get harder from here.
1: Yeah. It's a different version of the conflict that happened in secret rooms where good people decided to go their own way under the banner of Mary Sampson because they didn't feel that they could trust Thomas or the RSA, Mm. even though we still like Mary Sampson better than we do fucking Caleb Buck, the man who agreed to work with the RSA. This this conflict ends with Bishop Miller and the Amish being willing to rejoin the RSA. But, you know, uh, I have uh, a couple of quid pro crows, you know, as the genie <laughs> might say. and And not to get too far off topic into the real world here, but when I was revisiting this moment of Arlington and therefore went on to do a little bit of research into what the Amish are like in 2020 2021 I had a chance to learn more about what the Amish were like historically and how that how they interact with the modern world now having done a modicum of research and seeing their interaction with the modern world as regards their stance regarding child labor, as regarding modern medicine, and the effects of being a closed community with regards to breeding and their opinions of non-Amish. Look, I'll, I, I'm going to avoid mocking them in general, but that's not the same as approval. And as it turns out, the one laudable thing that is attributed to them in the past couple of years, protesting in favor of Black Lives Matter, was apparently a misnomer, because that was not the actions of the Amish. It was an act by a non-Anabaptist church. So it got reported wrong. So the Amish don't even necessarily have that to their credit in terms of the modern conversation hmm. uh, and we're, we're oh, going to put
0: that good for that uh church whoever they were
1: yeah uh, i'm going to put links in the show notes that specifically follow up with uh, my resources in that regard so that you'll know where citation. i'm coming from about that yes citation requested I, i've got the citation i've got the receipts right here for you as, as the kids <laughs> say uh <laughs> So, do you have anything, I well, I, I suspect I know what the answer is, but do you have anything more to say about that particular topic before we move on?
0: Yeah, I, I can't put it better than what you have established. As I mentioned earlier, it's not an area of, like, I have done a lot of research in, and I am uh, trusting your uh, citations, but also... Generally, I think I stand by a lot of your conclusions from that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy to leave it at that. And I know it's the easy joke to say, but uh, if any Amish are listening to this and uh, have you know issue, please write in to us.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, I'll, I'll I'll put up a, uh, a what's it called an address that you can send <laughs> letters to. Or I'll give my email. I'm sure you will be able to send us email. Yeah, exactly. Uh,
0: (laughs) It's the easy joke. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry, too. But yeah, I mean, it's not like the easy joke hasn't been made before uh, in regards to this kind of thing. And once more, that brings us to the end of the episode. Some of you might be wondering if after referring to Huey Lewis twice in this episode, if there is any surprise back in time and space content but I honestly don't want to run the risk of spoiling the book, and the released cover likely tells you enough about what you're potentially in for. The simple truth is this. It's a good book. People should read it, and we'll definitely be doing a News of the Century show on it. But that will have to wait until Toby reads it, and we've got other things to work on until then. To close this out, a favorite song from the 90s. I've never heard anything else this artist has done, but she was apparently a bigger hit in Europe and places other than America. It's a great song, and puts me immediately in mind of Harry Arlington, and the general powerful energy of their entire family. Until next time, this is Desiree with You Gotta Be.
3: You gotta be tough, you gotta be stronger, you gotta be cool, you gotta be calm, you gotta stay together. All I know, all I know, love will save the day. You're what your mother said, in the books, your father